May it please the podcast. Good day, listeners, and welcome to On Trial. I'm your host, Christopher DiGennaro, a commercial litigation lawyer with a focus on trial practice at Foley and Lardner in the firm's New York office. Today, we're joined by Mike Gay, an experienced trial lawyer and Foley partner in the firm's Orlando office. Mike is a member of the firm's business litigation and dispute resolution and intellectual property litigation practice groups, and he focuses his practice on Bet the Company litigation. Mike previously served as chair of Foley's National Litigation Department, and he has been instrumental in growing the firm's trial capabilities, including by championing trial training for the firm's litigators. During our conversation, Mike talks about voir dire as the most important part of trial and being able to connect with people as the most important skill of a trial lawyer. He emphasizes how important it is to connect with the jury and some of his strategies in that regard. He also shares some unbelievable trial war stories, including his very first trial, where he cross-examined an expert with only an hour's notice, and a defamation case where he defended a newspaper against a defamation claim by a notorious mobster. Please enjoy the podcast, and I'll be back with you for summation. Mike Gay, thanks so much for being here. I'm so pleased to to have you with me today on the On Trial podcast. I really appreciate your time. Happy to be here. I'm really excited to have you because you are one of the most prolific trial lawyers at our firm, Foley and Lardner, and I know you love to try cases. Absolutely. Best and part I'd, of being a lawyer. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that you just concluded your tenure as head of Foley's global litigation department. I did. I was replaced by one of your previous guests, Lisa Noller. That's right. And in fact, having had you, Lisa, and Mike Tator on the program, I've had all three of Foley's most recent litigation department heads. The only one still here, the one before that, retired. Mark so, McSweeney, also a great trial lawyer. I'll take that to mean that the podcast is doing something right or is at least mildly interesting. I have enjoyed listening to all of your podcasts. So, of course, I want to hear about your views on the most important part of trial, your views on the most important skills of trial lawyers, and certainly your most memorable trial moments. But first, I'd like to talk to you a bit about how you came to be a trial lawyer, because I think you've got a really interesting story in that regard. Interesting, but maybe not traditional. So... My father had gone to West Point and believed that every one of his children should get an engineering degree. He thought that was a great fallback for whatever you wanted to do. If, if your dreams didn't work, engineering would always be there. And I was going through school as an engineer, not terribly thrilled. I could do the work, but didn't love it. And it was after my second year in college, I interned at who was then Martin Marietta, but has since become Lockheed Martin, walked around in a big room filled with cubicles and some office, window offices. I realized I didn't love being an engineer, so I'd be a cubicle guy. And that was not something I looked forward to. So I tried to figure out what excited me and what career I wanted to pursue. And this is the slightly embarrassing part. I went into law because I knew that what drove me was competition. I 
played sports all throughout school. It was a high school basketball, football, track, swimming, but realized I, I wouldn't be taking my talents any further than high schools when I went to college. So I was looking for a job where you could get that same feeling of competition, where there'd be the instantaneous, you won, you lost. I knew that would drive me. I never was a great athlete, but I practiced harder than anybody so I could get on the court and play. And I figured in a courtroom, you've got that same motivation. The practices, the discovery, the motion practice, it's hard, it's drudgery, but if you want to get in the game, you've got to get through the practice. And that's how it's played out. And I've enjoyed every minute of it. Mike, I got to tell you, I just love that. You say it's unconventional, but in fact, almost all of our previous guests have said something along those lines, which is, you know, they love trial and me too, by the way, because it's, it's like that sport in a way that we can't get elsewhere. Of course, we're not professional athletes, but this is a way to go up against an adversary with a discrete objective winning and do your best to obtain that objective for your client. So it really resonates with me. And, and it's one of the reasons that I think I went into being a trial lawyer myself. And it's, you're the quarterback. It all rests on your shoulders. So there, there's no one to blame for a loss but you. There's a lot of credit you can take with the win. And you're taking the last shot on the court. You're throwing the touchdown pass as time runs out. It, or you throw an interception. And I guess that's the thrill of being in court. And that, that adrenaline rush is as close to throwing that touchdown pass as possible. And where did you get your first sort of taste of trial? <laughs> I started out in Texas. I was at a big firm that did general commercial litigation, but also did insurance defense for Lloyd's of London. And we had a case down in South Texas. I was the second chair, probably a year and a half out, had prepared their medical expert, a treating physician by deposition. Because as the partner said, nobody calls their treating physician live. It's too expensive. They take the deposition. All they do is read it or play it at trial. You prepare for the cross by deposition. So I wasn't going to be doing anything but reading the deposition. I can remember it to this day. We we're breaking for lunch. The judge asks plaintiff's lawyer, what's up after lunch? Plaintiff's lawyer said, we're going to call our treating physician. Judge said, by depo. And the plaintiff's lawyer said, no, we're calling him live. And the partner looked at me and said, I hope you're ready. And <laughs> I had about an hour to get in the mind frame of doing a live cross and cross of an expert in essence, but they had prepared enough. And I can remember thinking right before walking into the courtroom, I guess I'll figure out if I wasted the last three years of <laughs> my life or not. And the rest is history. And luckily the cross-examination went well. I realized I'd picked the right profession and the right choice of law area of being a trial lawyer. And yes, I was more excited than ever to be a trial lawyer. And that was your first year as a lawyer? Yes. I mean, as, as you certainly appreciate having been the head of litigation in Foley for many years, I mean, that's a rare opportunity. It is. It's one of the things that scares me for future of trial law. When I 
came up and I would think the same is true for your prior guests, we got to try a lot of cases. Part of it was the type of cases that we got to try. Part of it was, in all honesty, the, the rates that now get charged make it a lot more difficult for smaller cases to go to trial. And I worry about the experience level for the attorneys who are starting out now. We've got to make sure, and Foley does a good job of training our young trial lawyers, trying to give them those experiences in a number of different ways. But we have to have true trial lawyers because when those bet the company cases come up, the clients want to know that we've got the people who have the experience and are ready to take on those challenges. So a couple things I want to follow up on there. But first, I want to point out that you know, during your tenure as head of litigation at Foley, you were and you continue to be a champion of trial advocacy and trial practice more generally. And I, I think that is not especially common among your counterparts at other large law firms. So I think that's something that is especially great for you and, of course, for us at Foley. How do you, I mean, through training programs, certainly, but how do you try to cultivate the next generation of trial lawyers that isn't going to get the same opportunities that you know you and your contemporaries did. Part of it is, and, and it's it works with Foley's general desire to be part of the community. But we, as you know, encourage pro bono work and participation in pro bono efforts. That gives people the opportunity to get in court and, and try cases they might not otherwise get the chance to try. Part of it is finding clients who take a lot of cases to trial and maybe discounting the rates so that we can get young lawyers involved in those cases and hopefully get the trial experience. But we also have a, a very robust trial training program. In fact, this past year, and by the way, it's not just the young lawyers, it's young partners as well, but we had an extensive trial training program with original material created by one of our trial lawyers and had a, it was a year long program, but we had a full mock trial experience with, we hired actors to come in and play witnesses. We had juries come in and, and render decisions. We also encourage our attorneys when they're taking a second chair or a second and third chair to trial to give them opportunities on witnesses, direct examination, cross-examination, oftentimes opening. I mean, to be honest with you, when I go to try a case, if I have a second chair, that second chair is going to play a meaningful role. And part of that is my view of how juries react to lawyers. I'd love to think every juror will love me. The reality is I know some of them won't. If I have a second chair that they love, then if they play a minor role, that does no good for me or for the case and for the client. If they have a more significant role, if they're doing the opening statement, if they're doing the closing statement, and there's that connection between those jurors and the traditional second chair, they'll realize that the second chair is just as invested in the case and the outcome. And that may be the difference between a verdict in our favor or a verdict against us. So I, I can't remember the last time I went to trial and the second chair didn't have either an opening, closing, sometimes more dire, and that also gives them the kind of training that we hope they get. Well, that's great to hear, Mike. And that 
seems to me to be really well thought out. So certainly appreciate that. You know, you mentioned that the kinds of cases that we're likely to see more often not are are these very consequential, perhaps bet the company cases. And that leads me to ask you about your current practice, because I think I understand that, that you often get involved in, you know, bet the company kinds of litigations. So I'd love to hear about that. I think because people know I love to try cases, I end up getting a lot of unique cases. A lot of them are bet the company cases. People know that I will take any case to trial and I'm anxious to get to trial. I think it helps in settling cases. Obviously, clients don't love to go to trial, but if the other side knows you're willing to go and ready to go, it puts you in a better bargaining position. But as a result, I've tried a number of different types of cases covering a wide variety of areas, industries. I'm certainly more of a dinosaur than the modern trial lawyers who specialize in one area. I've just always enjoyed the variety, getting to learn new industries, getting to learn new areas of the law. By the way, and I think you and I have talked about this before, that's one of the things that I love about being a trial lawyer and litigator more generally is confronting new problems, issues in industries that I'm perhaps somewhat or totally unfamiliar with and similarly unfamiliar areas of law. But in a short time, right, I'll be an expert or a relative expert or just expert enough to to make a jury think that I know what I'm talking about. We all went to law school where we had to cram a bunch of knowledge in and, and be able to speak intelligently about it in a short period of time. And at least what we learned in law school in that regard helps us as trial lawyers. Yeah, I think that's right. So before we move on, though, I just want to talk a bit more about your practice. So maybe it'd be helpful to hear what a bet the company case is in your view. I mean, they obviously take many forms. It depends on the client. The ones you typically hear about are intellectual property cases. Somebody has lost their intellectual property rights are threatened, and that's a key portion of their case. Sometimes it's the size of the case. If it's a billion-dollar lawsuit and and threatens the viability of the company going forward, it's bet the company for them. But a $10 million lawsuit can be a bet the company case for a mid-sized firm. A fraud allegation that may impact the reputation of the company that relies on reputation to succeed. I would love to tell you there's some financial threshold, but it all depends on on the type of company you're dealing with and the size of the company you're dealing with. For some companies, a $250,000 lawsuit could be bet the company for them if it's a startup and deals with a key technology they might be using in their startup company. So they take all kinds of forms. What you know is there are bet the company cases for that individual or that company because it threatens their livelihood. And that puts a lot of pressure on the company, but it also puts a lot of pressure on the attorney. The traditional breach of contract case for a multi-billion dollar company, if they win, they're happy. If they lose, they may be upset, but it's not gonna impact the ongoing business. Same type of case for a small startup and it's at the company. Yeah. and. By the way, the higher the stakes, the more exciting, I imagine, for you as a trial lawyer. Yep. Back to the sports analogy, Super Bowl is always more fun to play in than a preseason game. <laughs> That's right. It's been great hearing about 
your practice and how you came to have it, especially how you, you became interested in being a trial lawyer in the first instance. But now I want to sort of get to, to talking about being on trial. And so I want to start with what you think is the most important part of trial. In my view, and I've, I've listened, I've, I've heard your prior guests talk about different aspects of the trial, and certainly all of them are, whether it's the opening statement, key closing statement, key cross-examination, in my view, and, and this isn't obviously in every case because every judge is different, but Vordire, or, and I, I started practicing in Texas, so I say Vordire, Vordire, in my view, is the most important. If a judge allows you the latitude to truly pick your jury. Okay. And what and what do you think that means, truly picking your jury? Depending on the judge, a lot of judges give you very little latitude, including doing the questioning of the jurors and allowing you to submit questions as opposed to asking the questions yourself. They will oftentimes screen those questions or allow you to ask questions, but only certain questions that you submit ahead of time, that makes it much more difficult in order to do what I think can be accomplished in a voir dire. Voir dire is your first opportunity to meet the jury. It's their first impression of you. Jurors, while they may think they want to be on the jury, they don't know exactly what to expect. They've seen it on TV, but they have no idea what's really going on and they're looking for a guide. Their first guide is the judge. Judge is going to tell them how things go, but the lawyers are doing most of the talking. And you have an opportunity to instill a level of trust, whether it's in Vordire or if your first opportunity is in opening. You want to create that trust that you can be the guide they look to in a foreign situation. So initially, they're going to have doubts. They trust a judge. They don't know that they can trust the lawyers. The lawyers, they've seen the ads on TV. They've seen, heard the jokes. They've seen maybe what jurors do in a movie, in a TV show. They aren't sure if they can trust the lawyer. And you have to overcome that. And it's the only time, Vordire is the only time you get to interact, as opposed to opening where you're talking to them but there is no true interaction. You may get some interaction in how they respond to something you say non-verbally, but in Vordire, you get to ask them questions. You get to gauge their responses and follow up. And so when you have that opportunity, to me, that's the most important part of trial. Okay. So I'm so glad you raised Vordire as the most important part of trial in your view. I think Obtaining the trust of the jury as early as you can is, you know, paramount importance. So how do you do that in Wadir? What are you looking to do to try to gain their trust? And that also depends on if you're the plaintiff or the defendant. Plaintiff, it's great because you're the first one that gets to talk to them. And you can set them at ease or you can make it uncomfortable for them. And that's where I see people making mistakes. They go through a rote series of questions for each one, trying to figure out if this is somebody they want, and they don't actually engage with them, ask them about what type of work they're in, how they do that work, what's their favorite part of their job. And I think it's just being human 
and letting them know that this isn't just going to be something that is a scary process that they won't know about. You have the chance to explain it a little more than what the judge did, even how the case is going to go forward, explain that you're going to be providing them with evidence and testimony that they get to decide. It is an opportunity to teach the jury what they can expect. As the defense lawyer, you have to overcome that first impression from the plaintiff's lawyer and either build on it if it was a bad impression and show the stark contrast between you and them or overcome maybe that connection they've made and explain to them their two sides to restore. And there's a number of different ways that you can do that. I've been doing this a long time. And so a lot of it is just gut feel. It's funny because in Vordire, the natural reaction, if you hear somebody say, oh, I hate this type of thing that would be bad for your client. Most people want to run away from that person. They know they're going to strike them and they're going to not ask them any questions because they're afraid they're going to poison the jury. I like to go back and talk to that person and find out what their views are and find out why they hate X or Y or why they might have a bias towards this type of company or this type of client. And maybe you get them to come around. You still won't put them on your jury, but you then explain to the rest of the veneer why that person is wrong in their views. If you don't, that thing out there, boy, I, I, I don't like insurance companies. I think they're evil. I think they feed off the poor people. Again, most people are going to want to run away from that person. I'd give them a chance to talk more about why insurance companies are bad. I think you can go to that person, talk to them, not confront them, but talk to them about their views and explain why insurance might be necessary if that's your client. That's really interesting. And I think that's a, that's a great point. Going back, talking to that person it, for the benefit of the rest of the panel. Right. Um, and yeah. the rest of the panel doesn't have that memory in their mind. Oh yeah, that one guy said insurance companies are evil. Doctors right. are greedy or whatever it might be. You you can't run away from that and leave it hanging out there. In addition to you know running down those kinds of things, are you also trying to make personal connections and you know letting your sort of personality shine through as opposed to sort of being more formal and, and formulaic about it? Every second I'm up there, you want to make that connection. Yes. You also have the opportunity, and you have to be careful, it depends on your judge, but you have an opportunity to kind of lay out your theme that you're going to play through opening all of your witnesses, all of your crosses, and then closing, and preview it, and see if there's a reaction to that theme. Because we all, most trial lawyers, go into a trial with a common theme that they want running throughout the trial. So, not to put you on the spot, but how do you do that? And maybe, you know, you have an example or something that would sort of help us understand it. Uh, last Bordire I did wasn't long ago. And their side had claimed that their client had been misled. And one of our themes was the client couldn't have been misled. He was fully knowledgeable about anything and everything having to do with the subject of the case. And so I took a plastic pen, walked up to one of the jurors and asked him 
if I told him that was a solid gold pen, would he believe me? And he said, no. I said, why? He said, I'm holding it. I can tell. It's a plastic pen. I then asked a couple of others if they would believe me. And that was part of the theme that I wanted to run through the, the case, was that there has to be reasonable reliance on any representation. Part of our defense was we never made that representation. But even if we had, this was the CEO claiming that some junior people had deceived him about a key issue in the case. And I'm being careful because we might be going back to trial in that case. That's a great, great story. I love it. And that's exactly what I was looking for. So I want to talk about, in your view, the most important skill of a trial lawyer. Maybe there's more than one. Maybe it's skills. What do you think about that? I think being able to make a connection with people, whether it's in Vordire, in opening, in direct, understanding. I mean, you get to be, in essence, the writer and the director and the lead actor of a play. It's not a play that always goes to script, but during that time, you get to look surprised when a witness gives an answer you've been expecting because they had said the same thing in a deposition. And understanding how sitting over it in that box that might be perceived. So I think being able to connect and understand how other people will view things is a key trait that you need. I think being able to react quickly to the unexpected, because I've yet to be in a trial where everything went as planned. And I think having a resilience to something bad happening and not showing it. So I guess a bit of a poker face, but it's, it's ultimately coming up with a theme that not only fits the facts, but will resonate with those six or 12 people sitting in the box. I agree with, with that. And I think the way you described it's really interesting. Some people say that the trial lawyer certainly is this important intermediary, but the facts are the facts, the law is the law. And, you know, the jury's going to, is going to go with, with whatever the facts are, whatever the law is. I think you and I agree that in fact, the trial lawyer can win or lose cases. And I want to hear your, your thoughts on that. I would say a trial lawyer can definitely lose a case and they can lose it in opening. They can lose it in closing. They can lose it in how they treat a witness. And if you can lose a case, you can certainly win a case. And if it were that simple, all we do is write summaries and present them to a jury who can review it without having any of the play going on in front of them. It all depends on how a witness says a fact. It all depends on how the story plays out with those pieces of evidence that you bring in and how you bring them in. What's the order you bring them in? Do you do everything chronologically? to make it as logical as possible for the jury? Do you start with the best thing, even though it may not be chronologically what happened first? Those are all strategic decisions and, and it's an art. And just like some artists are better than others, some trial lawyers are better than others. And I think it would be naive to think that we're irrelevant and we have play no role in a win or a loss of a case. I think that's right. And certainly preparation is critical. 
how do you prepare for a trial and when do you start to prepare for a trial? It's going to sound trite because uh, you hear it all the time. I start preparing for the trial when the case comes in the door. You start thinking of your themes, what will work. It guides your discovery from day one. It guides your depositions from day one. You have to start thinking about how this case will play out in trial, even though I think the numbers are 95% of cases settle. I fortunately worked with some phenomenal trial lawyers when I came out, two in particular who I still think are two of the best trial lawyers I've ever seen. And I remember sitting in an office of one of those lawyers when a case came in and he immediately started running through his themes for the case and how he saw it playing out at trial. And that's kind of guided me from that first year of practicing law. Is there something that you do in particular other than kind of identifying and developing themes? You know, do you keep like a notebook or something or a diary <laughs> for each case? Yeah, I mean, some some people do, by the way. I do. I I have general themes and I love quotes. I love to bring out quotes when they're appropriate. And I have a book of quotes that, that I will use depending on the theme of the case. Most often I quote my dad who always had these little quips that when I was young, I didn't completely understand and have used a lot of them in trial as what my dad used to always say to me. I knew a lawyer who used to always talk about his closing argument was when, and hopefully he won't get mad that I'm putting this out there, but it was my little boy stories. Inevitably, his son would ask him about his case and he would explain it to his son and his son would figure out the right way to go. And we had a trial out in Texas. In Texas, the judge encourages the jury to talk to the lawyers afterwards. And to a person, they talked about the My Little Boy story. And that My Little Boy story didn't actually happen. But we worked on it for probably three weeks before the trial about what his little boy would ask him and how he would explain it and what his little, the conclusions his son would come up with. Did he at least have a little boy? He did. Okay, good. <laughs> but his, his little boy, I think, stayed about seven years old for a good <laughs> 10 years. That's great. This has been great so far, hearing about your experience, uh, your practice, how you, you came to be a trial lawyer, what you think the most important part of a trial is, and the most important skills of a trial lawyer. Now I'd like to hear about some of your trial war stories. And certainly it'll be hard to top learning that you're going to cross-examine somebody with about an hour's notice. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, would love to hear about your most memorable trial experience or your next most memorable trial experience, if that was indeed your most memorable trial experience? No, my most memorable, and, and it's funny because you talked about bet the company cases. This by no means was a bet the company case, but I represented a newspaper in Central Florida that had gotten sued by a former mafia enforcer who claimed the newspaper defamed him because they referred to him as a hitman. And his defense was that he was not a hitman because he had never been paid for all the murders he committed. <laughs> and, and for whatever reason, it was probably because he was pro se, but for whatever reason. Oh, wow. Okay. The judge let it go all the way to trial. Oh, and my gosh. 
I spent three days across, well, one day deposing a mafia enforcer and three days in a courtroom with a mafia enforcer. And I'll be honest with you, I was, I was worried about whether a jury would zero out somebody who on the stand admitted to killing his childhood friend at the direction of the mafia underboss. Oh, but gosh. luckily the jury zeroed him out. Wow. I mean, how could that not be your most memorable trial? And so pro se, did, did he cross-examine uh, yes. witnesses? Wow. Yeah. What was funny was that he had been put into the witness protection program because he had testified and brought down the Bonanno crime family. And they moved him to the east coast of Florida, changed his name. He was arrested for a felon in possession of a gun. Even though he had a clean record because he was not allowed to own a gun, he had arrested as a felon in possession of a gun. After he jumped across, he had started a pizzeria and I guess not understanding what it means to lay low, called it Goombas. And somebody came in to complain about their cold calzone. He jumped across the counter and pistol whipped him. Oh, all of which, man. All of which was caught on his own security camera. Gets arrested, this intrepid young reporter, cares about it, decides to write a story, tries to look him up, sees he has no record, and figures out that Somebody with no record doesn't just pistol whip somebody out of the blue. Does the research and figures out who he is. And in writing the story, she says, former mafia hitman. And that's the basis of his defamation claim. Oh my gosh. That's, uh, that's an unbelievable story. Did you have a particular theme that, you know, you carried throughout that, that trial and hit home at closing with the jury? Yeah. And it was basically a... Hitman is a hitman, whether you get paid or not. And and the last thing I said in closing was, if my client doesn't pay me after this case, does that mean I'm not a lawyer? I like it. That's great. So what about most memorable trial moment, if you have one other than your very first trial? That's a good question. I had a case that, again, the judge should have thrown out before trial. It dealt with a $20 million oral guarantee. And in that case, I, the CEO of the person allegedly receiving the oral guarantee was a German national and had a thick German accent, basically impeached himself. And when I decided to point it out to him, he looked at me and said, you are confusing me. You will stop confusing me now, which made me laugh and made the... <laughs> jury laugh, and that's when I knew we were going to win. <laughs> so I'll be honest with you. Everybody has their own style in court, and I am much less formal than a lot of people and enjoy kind of being able to entertain the jury. Same case, but perhaps maybe a little more memorable just because it hit so well. I had a theme and opening... We were the defense. So plaintiff gets up, gives his theme. I get up and give my theme. We go through trial. In closing, opposing counsel does what is a pretty good trial strategy. He gets up and says, ladies and gentlemen, at the beginning of this case, I said it was about X. 
Mr. Gay got up and said, this is about why. And you know, I think he's right. And let me explain to you why under his theme, he still loses. So taking my theme and trying to turn it on. And I guess I could have gotten in trouble, but I got up and I said, ladies and gentlemen, for once opposing counsel and I agree on something. We both like my opening statement better than his. And it, <laughs> again, got that same jury laughing. And you get the jury laughing at opposing counsel. And in this case, laughing at the opposing client, you're in pretty good shape. Yeah, I, I, I think so. And, and, you know, I think you're touching on something that I've touched on with other guests. And, and I, I think it's really important. You got to be yourself in court. Yes. Uh, you can't try to to perform as someone else because that's how you that's how you can connect best with the jury, the judge, and even the witnesses. And you're exactly right. And if you have that relationship with the jury, also as you just said, with the witnesses, it comes across as genuine. And if you're not genuine, the jury will see through you in a heartbeat. So those big displays you'll see people making, throwing their hands up, but when it's too rehearsed it always falls flat. Yeah, I think that's right. So Mike, this has just been really great. I'd like to end with a lesson or lessons that you've learned throughout your years of experience as a trial lawyer that you'd tell yourself as a young lawyer or, or perhaps even before your first trial. It would actually be what you just said. So I'm stealing from you a little bit. You have to be yourself you got to develop your own style. My view as I've aged is that there are three stages of becoming a trial lawyer. The first stage is you watch somebody and you say, holy cow, I'll never be able to do that. Second stage will be, and it differs depending on how long you've been practicing, but you say, see somebody do a really good trial and you say, wow, that was good, but I wonder if this would have worked. The third stage and when you know you're a trial lawyer is when you see a really good trial and you say, that was good, but I can do it better. And you pick up over time things from the people you work with, even the people you work against, and you incorporate that into your own style. There is no one style that is effective. There is no key thing that everybody should do to be an effective trial lawyer. It all depends on your personality. As long as you let your personality come across, but I will tell you, when the best thing that happened to me in terms of me being a trial lawyer was when I was growing up, my dad gave me every horrible job. I mean, found me jobs that were horrible to do. I laid asphalt in central Florida in the summer. I was on a, a survey crew out in the swamps of Florida. I was a carpenter's helper building a restaurant in central Florida during the summer. All of these things that he did for me to try and encourage me to stay at school actually helped me as a trial lawyer because I've realized the people who are on your jury are just as smart as you are. They may have had different opportunities in life and ended up where they are, but as soon as you talk down to them, as soon as you seem arrogant to them, you'll lose them. But if you realize these are people who understand things and do not need to be talked down to, then you're going to make that connection with them and you'll have the best possible outcome in that trial. I think that's right. I think that's so interesting that all of those jobs and deciding you didn't want to be an engineer led you to become a trial lawyer and a good trial lawyer at that. By the way, how did your dad feel 
when you uh, left engineering behind and decided to become a lawyer? <laughs> he wouldn't let me transfer out after my second year. I had to finish and got the degree in engineering. But <laughs> he actually went on to become a lawyer, not a trial lawyer. He was real estate and tax and, and trust in states. But he was a lawyer, never pushed me to become a lawyer, never recommended it at all. So he couldn't fault me too much. Ah, how about that? Well, Mike, this has been great. Thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate you being here on the On Trial podcast. Well, can I, one last thing? Sure. I think it's great you're doing this. You're going to learn a lot from some great people and you should keep it up. It's, it's a great experience for me, great experience for you. Thanks very much, Mike. You're the quarterback. It all rests on your shoulders. No one to blame for a loss but you. You're throwing the touchdown pass as time runs out, or an interception. That's the thrill of being in court. Sports analogies abound. It's clear Mike loves a good competition, especially when the stakes are high and the result is a client win. Mike was the first Foley podcast guest to talk about voir dire as the most important part of a trial since it's a lawyer's first and only opportunity to interact with jurors. And this makes sense given Mike's style and personality. He's cool and casual and connects easily with anyone. Therefore, it was no surprise to hear from Mike on the most important skill of a trial lawyer, connecting with the jury. And it was really interesting to hear him talk about how he does this by holding himself out at the outset of trial as a guide for jurors, throughout the unfamiliar and at times intimidating process that is a jury trial. And Mike's war stories were second to none. I could not believe that he defended a newspaper in a defamation lawsuit brought by a notorious mobster who took issue with the paper referring to him as a hitman. Mike's closing line at trial, if my client doesn't pay me after this case, does it mean I'm not a lawyer, was just the thing to put the plaintiff's claim in perspective. And it was great to hear Mike's sage advice. Be yourself and let your personality shine through, but don't be afraid to borrow and learn from others. Please tune in next time for another interesting discussion on the art of trial with another seasoned trial lawyer. Thank you for listening to this production from Foley and Lardner LLP. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and is intended as a general overview. The podcast does not constitute legal advice nor solicitation to provide legal services. It's not meant to convey a legal position of Foley and Lardner LLP on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice. Any opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the firm, its partners, or its clients. The podcast is not intended to create and listening to the podcast does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. The listener should not act upon this information without seeking counsel from a licensed attorney. Foley makes no representations or warranties of any kind, expressed or implied, as to the content of the podcast or to its accuracy or completeness, and accepts no responsibility for an individual who acts or refrains from acting based on information obtained from the podcast. In some jurisdictions, the contents of this podcast may be considered attorney advertising. If applicable, 
please note that prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.